0: Praise the Lord. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to uh, John chapter 6. We're uh, currently going through the Gospel of John, and uh, we're uh, trying to get a chapter, a service done, and we're going to try to do that again this evening. We're going to start off, uh, this is uh, the story of Jesus feeding the multitude, feeding the 5,000, well, the 5,000 men. And... um, uh, I think uh, the best way to approach this tonight is let me just go ahead and start in chapter 6, verse 1, and read down through verse 13. It tells us the story of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, and then we'll back up and we'll make some comments. Everything else in the chapter is relative to this miracle event that took place. So uh, we need to establish the, the foundation for everything else that takes place in this chapter. John speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and said, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. So it's healing that created the crowd. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he said unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There's a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to his disciples... And the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Now, a couple of things you want to um, be aware of about this. This is the only... Miracle, the only healing, the only spectacular event, sign, wonder, whatever you want to call it, that Jesus performed that all four gospel writers record. It's the only one. Now, there's got to be a reason for that. Do you know that the, the history of the things that we've talked about relative to the gospel of John, John writes this gospel some 60 years after Jesus has uh, been crucified and raised from the dead, probably um, 50 years after the last of the other three gospels have been written. So he knows that this story is in all the other three Gospels. John's the last one. He's probably in his 90s at the time that he writes this in about 93, 94 A.D., somewhere around then. And so he's well aware of the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all off the scene. They've all gone home to be with the Lord. And as a result, those, those books, those uh, letters or accounts that the three of them were inspired by the Holy Ghost to write have been circulating in the church for years. So John knows what's there. The fact that John would tell us this story, when the other three gospel writers already tell us about this story, is significant to me, in that the Holy Ghost is trying to bring something out. Now we've uh, we've talked about the theme of the Gospel of John being different from any of the other gospel accounts, and that is John's theme is Jesus is the Son of God. Matthew painted uh, Jesus uh, as uh, by the Holy Ghost as the perfect man, uh, the King of uh, the the Son of David. The King of Israel, Mark painted Jesus as the servant of God. Luke painted Jesus as well. I mixed up Matthew and, and Luke. Matthew is the perfect man. Luke is the King of Israel, the son of David. John's different in that he points out Jesus as the Son of God. Now, this probably has a couple of bari- a couple of reasons why. One is at the time that uh, that John writes this gospel or about the time that John writes this gospel we know from some other things he's written the other letters that he wrote to the church that people are questioning the deity of Jesus and so it could be that the Holy Ghost is getting him to, to write a first-hand account remember he was one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples a first-hand account to settle the issue once and for all for all time that would certainly make sense that, that could have something to do with it there may be reasons behind it that we don't know that, uh, that aren't readily apparent but John tells us things about the ministry of Jesus and the work of Jesus, specifically this event, that none of the other gospel writers tell us. Now, some of the other gospel writers give us different details than John does, but John points it out in a different way. Let's go back to verse 1. Notice it says, after these things. This is one of John's um, catchphrases, for lack of a better term what he means is every time he uses this phrase after these things and he does it several times uh, seven times in the uh, uh, in the gospel of John and he was the author of the book of Revelation he does it nine times in Revelation this is something that he's used to doing we don't know if it was a, it was something that God particularly impressed upon him to do if it was no, his normal way of communicating you know we've all got things that we say over and over again I'm probably the world's worst at that but uh, uh, but nevertheless we do it that's just part of what we do that may be what's going on here with John, it may be something deeper or more significant than that. But the reality is this. Every time that he talks about that, it starts a new series of events or a new section of what he's trying to get across to us. Now, whereas Matthew and, and Luke were more of a chronology of Jesus did, this, Jesus did this, then Jesus did this, then Jesus did this, Mark is hitting the high spots, skipping over a lot of things, summarizing a lot of things, and uh, and, and telling us, things about Jesus' ministry in sections for the purpose of proving that he was the son of God. Now, after these things refers back to the stuff that he, that he was talking about in chapter 5. You remember in chapter 5, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, and the Jews wanted to kill him because he made himself equal with God. Jesus mixed no, made no bones about it. He didn't mince words about it. He said, I and my father are one. And the Jews wanted to kill him because of that. Because he made himself equal with God. The way that he said it is, my Father works and I work. So he's saying the works that I do are the works of the Father. That in the Jews' eyes was Jesus making himself equal with God. And when they accused him of it, Jesus didn't deny it. He said, well, of course. The works themselves should prove that. And so he's clearly in Jerusalem. Chapter 5 took place in the Jer- in Jerusalem, uh, in or around the temple. He's clearly identifying himself to the Jews that he's the son of God, and they wanted to kill him for it, so he leaves town. He leaves town and he goes into Galilee. So after these things starts a new series. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, the language is a little tough for us in the next couple of verses because we really don't know if, chapter, if, uh, if verse 2 should be where it is or not. There's two ways you can look at this. It could be saying, after these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiber- Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw the miracles which he did on them that were diseased. And therefore, verse 3, Jesus went up into a mountain. There he sat with his disciples. Or it could be, and the language doesn't tell us which one it is for, for sure. In my opinion, it could be either one. I think both of them are accurate. But it could be this way. After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and Jesus went up into a mountain and there he sat with his disciples and a great multitude followed him. Either way we know that after he becomes aware of the the, the multitude he does something about them. Now these uh, these other accounts the other gospel accounts Matthew 14, Mark 6 and Luke 9 tell us the story of the feeding of the 5000. Notice in verse 4 it says And the in uh, the Passover a feast of the Jews was nigh. Chapter 2 told us about Jesus going to the Passover already. So this is the second Passover. Passover takes place once a year. So that means Jesus, whose ministry started just before, very soon before. We don't know how, exactly how much before. But very soon before the Passover that, he des- that is described in chapter 2. Jesus' ministry began sometime shortly before the Passover. He's in Jerusalem for the first Passover during his three years of ministry. Now it's about time for the second Passover during his ministry. So he's been in ministry for about a year. Maybe a year and a couple of months, maybe just right at a year, but it's somewhere around that time. So a lot of stuff has happened during that first year that John hadn't told us about. That's one of the reasons why John uses the phrase after these things, because he's going from one important section to the next important section to prove that Jesus is the son of God. Not just to say, then Jesus did this, then Jesus did this, then Jesus did this. And oh, by the way, after that, he did this too. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? He's being directed by the Holy Ghost to tell us something. And since he's being directed by the Holy Ghost, there's got to be a reason why. So we need to perk up our ears and make sure we understand what's being said here. And folks, I got to tell you, for me, this is one of the most important events in Jesus' ministry. We're used to the story. We've heard it from Sunday school. If you used to go to Sunday school, we heard it from Sunday school days. And so we think we know what it is all about. And so many times we miss the import of what's being said, just like his disciples did. So Jesus, it's about the time for the Passover, and it says, Then Jesus, verse 5, When Jesus lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company come unto him. He said unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now the word whence means from which. So he's asking him, he's asking Philip, where are we going to buy bread? He does not ask Philip, what are we going to do? And Philip seems to understand the question uh, clearly enough. Because he answers, notice verse 6, Jesus said this to prove him. Another translation says it this way, Jesus said this to stretch Philip's faith. Folks, that's really important. That's a key element here. He asked Philip the question because there's something he's trying to get his disciples to understand and believe. And Philip says, Philip answers and says, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. He does not say it would take 200 penny worth, worth of two hundred to, to buy bread and we don't have that kind of money. Now, why is he asking Philip the question to begin with? Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Why is he asking Philip the question? Keep that in mind. He says, Philip answers and says, 200 penny worth of bread wouldn't be enough for everybody to have a little bite or a little taste. Two hundred pennyworth is this—a penny or a denarius was considered to be one day's wage, and so two hundred pennyworth, if you consider six days, six uh, days per week as a work week, two hundred pennyworth is about two thirds of a yearly income. So whether you make forty-five thousand dollars a year or you make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, not too many people have two thirds of a year's pay to, uh, worth of pay laying around that they can do something extra with. But Philip doesn't bat an eye at the money. The, the issue for him is, where would we do it? Now, the other gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark particularly, say that the disciples came to Jesus at the end of the day and said, send these people away that they can go into other villages and into the countryside round about so that they can find lodging and they get something to eat. In other words, if you spread everybody out, they might be able to travel to enough different places and buy food in sufficient measure to keep them overnight. But this much in, in one place, these many people in a, in a crowd, there's no way. There's not a Costco around. Now, remember, Jesus asked him because he's trying to prove him. He's testing his faith. Then one of the other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There's a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Now, hold your finger here. We're going to come back to this, certainly. and But I want you to see in uh, Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Why is Jesus trying to test or prove Philip? Well, we don't know exactly why he picked Philip. There are some, uh, there are some commentators that, that try to come up with some answers and Philip was this and Philip was that. But I'm not satisfied with even, even telling you what they say, to be honest with you, because there's just not enough Bible evidence for us to know. I think Philip just happened to be there and Jesus asked him. Maybe because he knew Philip's heart, maybe he knows his disciples, he knows who's on board, he knows who's not on board, he knows who's riding the fence, I don't know. But he asked Philip, and here's the reason why. I'm going to read uh, quite a bit of Psalm 78 because this is talking about Israel in the wilderness. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. Showing to them, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make known, make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them. Even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare unto them, uh, declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. This is the introduction for the psalm saying, here's why, we're, here's why this psalm is being inspired by the Holy Ghost to be written and recorded. And it all comes down to the generations that hear it are supposed to learn from what the psalm tells them so that they put their hope and their trust in God. That's what Jesus is testing Philip about. Now notice what the psalm continues to say. The children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle. This is verse 9. Verse 10, they kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. And they forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through and made the waters to stand as a heap. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against Him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God and said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? You see what they're asking? Is God big enough to feed us? Behold, He smote the rock and the waters gushed out. And the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore, the Lord heard this and was wroth, so that a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God and trusted not in His salvation. Now turn back with me to, to John chapter six. We could go further. There's other verses in there down through about verse thirty-two that just nails Israel to the wall. The point out, the the scripture I want you to see is they tempted God by saying, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Now, folks, this is a desert place. Not desert in the sense that it's sand and there's no water. It's desert in the sense that there is no big city around. Capernaum is nearby, but Capernaum is a small seaside town. There's no place big enough that would provide food for this many people. These people have come from all over the place. Many of them have come down from Jerusalem. Many of them have come from other territories outside of Israel. These multitudes have come because they've heard that Jesus was healing the sick. Now, Matthew and, uh, and Mark both say that Jesus had compassion on them. Actually, Matthew says, Matthew 14, says that Jesus had compassion on the multitudes and he taught them the word of God and healed all that were sick among them. Mark says he saw the multitude and had compassion on them and that's when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. John doesn't say a word about compassion. In fact, you can't find one reference in all of the Gospel of John where John refers to Jesus having compassion on people. Why? Why? Was Jesus not compassionate? Well, sure he was. And John was closest to him to see it in every aspect of of everything that he did. Why does John not talk about the compassion of the Lord where the other guys do? Very simply. Because John is emphasizing Jesus as being the Son of God, the divine one sent from God. He lets his works show forth God's mercy without ever saying a word about Jesus' feelings. Never a word. You know something else? Where the Bible says Jesus went up into the mountain to be alone... After this takes place, Matthew and Mark both say that he went up up there to pray. John doesn't say one word in his gospel about Jesus praying. Yet John was one of his three prayer partners. Whenever he would divide himself or separate himself to go by, be alone somewhere, John, Peter, James, and John were always the ones that would go with him, climbing up into the mountains so they'd, they'd pray sometimes all night long. At least Jesus would. I imagine they got some sleeping time in. But Jesus would pray all night long. He, he regularly took Peter, James, and John. Why wouldn't John tell us about his prayer life? The only thing John tells us in all of his gospel about Jesus' prayer is in John chapter 17, where is Jesus interceding for mankind before he goes to the cross? And he shows that as, as an example. Never says a word about his prayer life. Never says a word about the compassion of the Lord. Why? Because he's showing his theme, his purpose. He knows the other gospel accounts cover that. His purpose is to prove that Jesus was the divine son of God. So why does Jesus ask Philip, where are we going to buy food for this many people? He's looking for Philip to say, there's not a Costco around here, but we believe you're the Christ. You're going to be the one to tell us because you're the one that can do all things. He's looking for Philip to say something Contrary or other than what his forefathers said, he's looking for Philip to have been impressed enough with this year that he's been with Jesus and seen the miracles that have taken place to where he says, Jesus, I have no clue, but whatever you say, I'll do because all things are possible with you. That's what Jesus is looking for. And that's going to be an important theme, an important concept that goes throughout this whole thing and even into the next events. He's trying to get them to see, he's trying to get his own disciples to recognize, I am the Son of God. You don't have to worry about anything that looks like we don't have enough. Then Andrew speaks up and says, well, we've got a couple of loaves and fishes here, but what is that among so many? Jesus said in verse 10, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Matthew says it was 5,000 besides the women, the men, uh, the women and children. Mark says that not only was there grass there, it was green grass. Jesus is uh, fulfilling Psalm 23, 2, where it says, uh, he maketh me lie down in green pastures. He's showing or fulfilling the fact that he is the great shepherd. Verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down. Now let me ask you a question. We know what the story is. The, mul- the loaves and the fishes multiply. They wind up with 12 baskets full, much more than they even started off with. Nobody ha- can, can dispute or, or question that a miracle took place in this situation. Everybody that was there knows. And, and that's part of the reason God had, or Jesus had everybody sit down. Because number one, God's a God of order. But secondly, and here's another reason I think that, uh, that John uh, added this into his gospel is that there was no other miracle that Jesus took uh, partook in or, or or did in his earthly ministry that there was such a great crowd of people that witnessed it. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew. Nobody can question it. One of the few times a lot of times Jesus would do things and tell people I don't say anything about this. Not this time. Jesus is doing something out in front of everybody so that everybody sees because of the significance of what's being done. So when did the miracle take place? The disciples have everybody sit down. If there's 5,000 men in groups of 50, then that means what? There's 100 different groups, 100 groups of 50 besides the women and children. Doesn't tell us that they were sitting down. We don't know you got to realize the custom of the day was that not everybody ate together. In a situation like this, the men would eat first, then the women and children would eat, would eat later. So maybe that's why the men are sitting down and not everybody else. We don't know for sure. But if they're in a position for everybody to be able to witness what's going on, Jesus takes these five loaves and two fishes and breaks them up into the hands of his 12 disciples. The 12 disciples go then and take the few little pieces of what they've got and distribute it to the people. Where's the multiplying taking place? It has to take place in the hands of the disciples. Or else how is the disciples going to be able to carry enough food for 5,000 people? They're going from one group of 50s to the next group of 50s to the next group of 50. How are they going to be able to carry enough food? If it, if it multiplies when Jesus prays and blesses it, how are the disciples going to be able to carry enough for all the different groups? It's happening in front of the people. It's happening in front of these groups of 50 where the disciples are giving food here to this person and still they have more to give to this person and still have more to give to that person. We see in some of the, the uh, Bible stories and, and uh, books and stuff like that, where the disciples are carrying baskets. Uh, who travels three days and nights with baskets? It says there was enough to fill five, 12 small baskets left over, but it can't be that the disciples are carrying these great big baskets. I, I, uh, the, uh, the Bible series it, this was one of the things that they showed, and they showed the disciples carrying these great big baskets. Who travels out in the wilderness with baskets? Why would anybody have them? Doesn't make sense. What are they doing? They're handing them food. It's multiplying literally in the hands of the disciples. From their hand to somebody else's hand. It looks like the last piece is going to somebody and then there's another piece there. Then it goes to somebody else and there's another piece there. And notice how long it lasts. Notice it says in verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks... He distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes. They're giving out bread. They're giving out fishes as much as they would. The miracle continued until the demand ceased. That's going to be important when Jesus identifies what this all means. And when they were filled, that means everybody had more than enough. Everybody had their fill. Nobody pushed away and said, No, 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 I'll save some for the next guy. Everybody had everything that they wanted. When they were all filled, He said unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Folks, I want you to understand, God's a God of an abundance, but He's not a waster. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above... Unto them that had eaten. Isn't it interesting that there's 12 baskets full? Now why is that? Well, I think it's a sign in two ways. Number one, it's a sign to the disciples. God takes care of you as you take care of other people. Because there's a basket full for them. We don't have any records that they were eaten in the process. But now after it's all over, there's more than enough for them to eat too. But there's something else here too. And that is, what would they do with this? The disciples don't need a basket full of food. What was the intent of gathering it so that nothing be lost? So that it could be given to others as well. What do you think happened when that, when those food, when that food that was left over, those 12 baskets that were left over, when those were given to whoever they were given to? Whether it be the poor or, or sent home leftovers with people or whatever the case is, I don't know. But what do you think the story would be about this food? It was something that affected not just the the 5,000 men beside the women and children that were there. It was something that affected whoever had contact with what was left over. Now, that's the story of the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. But notice what it results in. Verse 14. Then those men, talking about the 5,000, when they had seen the miracle. No question about 5,000 men seeing the miracle plus whatever number of women and children there are. If, if it was anything like things are today, uh, women and children outnumber the men in church three to one. This could be upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people. But when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, they said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come unto the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come to and take him by force to make him a king, He departed into a mountain himself alone. Matthew and Mark say he departed alone to pray. Now, I want you to notice what happened. What happened was Jesus fed them. He didn't explain the significance. He just multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He's going to explain to his disciples and even to the Jews the next day what all this was supposed to mean. But at this point, the people saw the miracle and they tried to use Jesus for their own purpose. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus recognized, you can't make me a king. So he withdrew himself. Jesus didn't come to be the king. Jesus came to be the sacrifice. This multiplying the loaves and the fishes is about him giving his himself, his life, his body, and his blood as a sacrifice for mankind. Not about gaining some place of prominence. So he departed. He departed and went off by himself. Then it says, uh, verse 16, and when the evening was now come... His disciples went down unto the sea. And they entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not coming to them. Matthew says that he sent his disciples. He compelled them to go ahead. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew, so that when they had rowed about 20 or 30 furlongs, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he said unto them, It is, I be not afraid." Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. There's a couple of things different about this story than uh, some of the other gospel accounts. Mark chapter 6, for example. Let me read a couple of verses to you about this. The Bible says Jesus sent them away. Mark says uh, in verse 48, uh, Mark says in uh, chapter 6 verse 48, he said, and he saw them when they were out in the middle of the sea and the wind came up. He saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came forth uh, unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them by. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled, and immediately he talked with them and said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. Now please notice verse 52. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Mark tells us something that John doesn't tell us. Mark tells us they missed the whole point. John just focuses on the fact that he was the Son of God. The fact that he's walking on the water was proof that he was the Son of God. Now, John tells us something different than the other gospel writers. Matthew and Mark both say when Jesus got into the ship, the wind stopped. John says immediately it went to the other side. Now, some people look at that and they say, well, see, there's a discrepancy in the Bible. No, not really. The reason that the wind ceased is because they were immediately on land at the other side. The wind was only blowing out in the the middle of the sea. And that's very common for that part of the world. It's very common on the Sea of Galilee. The wind didn't stop from the standpoint that it wasn't rowing out in the middle of the sea anymore. It's that the ship was translated to the other side instantly. Now, what does that show us from John's account? This has got to be the Son of God. But the the thing I want you to see is the disciples missed the point of the miracle of the loaves and fishes. Now, why would Jesus send them out there on their own and stay behind and start walking on the water, according to Mark's account, he would have passed them by. What was that about? Why would Jesus... He saw them toiling and rowing. He saw that they were in trouble out there. Why would he have passed them by? Because he's trying to get them to see the same thing that he was trying to get Philip to see, and that is with him or at his word, all things are possible. But they missed it. They missed the whole point. They missed the point that... It didn't take a Costco. It didn't take some place where you could buy food in bulk to feed the multitude. It only took Jesus acting in the role that he was sent to fulfill for miracles to take place. Well, then what could they have done out in the sea? Well, what were they sent to do? To go to the other side. They could have made it. By simply acting on His Word, but they missed the point of the miracles. They missed the point of the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. Jesus is trying to get them to see, no matter what happens, no matter what the circumstance is, if you're with Me, if you're on a mission from Me, you're gonna be okay. The miraculous is yours to command. Can you see that? You know what's interesting about the miracle of the loaves and the fishes? There's only two miracles that Jesus performed that were creative miracles. One was the changing of water into wine. The other is the multiplying of loaves and fishes. Everything else is a, restor- a restorative miracle. Healing is a restoration from a disease condition. Now, you could argue that the, the maim that were healed in Jesus' ministry in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 16, or I'm sorry, chapter 15, you could argue that that's a, uh, a creative miracle, and I wouldn't argue that. That might qualify, but there is no other miracle that Jesus performed that falls into the creative miracle besides these two and maybe the other, if you want to include it. And this this was the one that everybody witnessed. This is the one that the biggest crowd witnessed. And Jesus is trying to show, he's trying to point out that just because something doesn't exist, that's no big step for God. And that's what he wants you to know too. We get in our head that things are big miracles and little miracles. Then does that mean little miracles are big enough or we're big enough or strong enough or have enough faith to perform little miracles? Just not the big ones? You know anybody that would claim that? If it's a miracle, it means it's out of our ability. Human ability. But Jesus is trying to show, if you're with me, if you're in me, if you're, if, if, if you're walking with me, if you're serving me, creative miracles are no big deal. Now they're a big deal for us. Real big deal for me. But as far as God's concerned, it's the same as anything and everything else. So, the next day, verse 22, the day following when the people that stood on the seaside, the other side of the sea, saw that there was none other boat there except the one that his disciples were entered into, and that Jesus did not go with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. And then John gives a little bit of clarification. He said, there were other boats there, but those were the ones that came from the other side of the sea and that everybody knew Jesus wasn't in. When the people, therefore, verse 24, saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, that means where they were before the day before, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou thither? Now, who are these people? These are the people that yesterday wanted to make him king. This is primarily a Gentile multitude. Matthew even says it that way. He says, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is primarily a Gentile multitude. Now, we read this, and it's easy to think that this is all happening in one place, in one location, but it's not. It's happening in three different places. It happens outdoors. The first part happens outdoors. Certainly, the miracle was where the 5,000 were fed. Then the sea, on the Sea of Galilee, that was a different location. Now, the next morning, they're over in Capernaum on the other side of the sea, not directly across, but uh, further up on the northern seashore. Other people come there and Jesus is in the open air again answering the question when people are are, are addressing them when they ask the question, when did you come here? They know that Jesus didn't come there by boat. So they ask, how did you get here? When did you come here? The question for them is, we don't understand how you got from point A to point B because we were watching and you didn't go by boat. And Jesus answers. Now it would seem like he would be excited that they're following him. I mean, that would seem to be a good sign, wouldn't it? But notice, Jesus answers and says in verse 26, Verily, verily, I say unto you, You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Jesus is saying something has happened to these people. Remember in verse 2, it says a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. Yesterday, they had come out there, and and, uh, Matthew tells us they had followed him for three days. Yesterday, they were there because of his healing miracles. Now they're there not because of the healing miracles anymore, but because of the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. He said, you're here because I fed you lunch. Was that a problem? Verse 27, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him has God the Father sealed. Then they said unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Now, folks, that is the great question. These guys are on the right track. What do we need to do that we can please God? Jesus answers and says unto them, verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he, God, has sent. Jesus is talking about himself. Now, this would have been the place for everybody to say, Jesus, we believe. We saw the multitude uh, we saw the multitude fed yesterday. We were part of that. We witnessed that miracle. We saw it take place right in front of our eyes. We saw the miracles that you did in Jerusalem. We've seen the miracles that you did here in Galilee before that. We've seen all these things. We believe that you're the Messiah. But notice what their response is. Jesus says, "This is the only thing that you have to do to please God. And that is to believe on him who God sent." And they said, verse 30, "Therefore unto him what sign showest, us thou, showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What, doest, what dost thou work? Are you kidding me? They're there because of the miracles. The day before, they had followed him. Three days because of the miracles, the healing miracles. Now they're back because of the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. And Jesus says, this is all it takes. Now, he's explaining how do you labor for the things that, that don't perish, the things that lead you into eternal life. What he's talking about in, the, in verses uh, verses 26 and 27, he's talking about the balance between the blessings, the material blessings of God and the eternal blessings of God. Now here's where a lot of people get tripped up. They hear people like myself preach on the fact that the Bible says God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. And they say, well, that's selfish. That's material. We need to focus on eternal things. Well, folks, that is focusing on eternal things. That's part of the blessings that Jesus purchased for you. The Bible says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. That means material blessings. Now, can you go overboard? Can you get involved in and and more concerned about or more interested in prosperity and the blessings of God, material blessings of God, rather than spiritual things? Absolutely. Is that a good thing to do? Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean God doesn't want you provided for It doesn't mean that God doesn't want to take care of you. It doesn't mean that God has a problem with you having plenty. God has a problem with you putting your eyes on the plenty. He has a problem with you and I becoming covetous. That's the only thing the Bible warns us against. The Bible says, Paul wrote to the church, said, Charge them that are rich in this world. That they be ready to distribute. Not high-minded, but they be of good heart. Somebody that's ready to give. That's all God expects of us. Don't let the things get you. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you're here because I fed you lunch. You want to see what today's menu is. You're focusing on the wrong things. You need to realize that there's a spiritual significance behind this. You need to realize that this has an eternal purpose behind it. And so they say, well, what do we have to do to work the works of God? Man, they're on the right track. Jesus said, all you have to do is believe on him that God sent. They said, show us a sign. Then they go further. Verse 31, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know what they're saying? They're saying, what sign are you going to show us? Now Moses fed his people for 40 years. You've just given us one meal. How is it that we're supposed to think you're greater than Moses? How is it that you're the one that God sent? Who would be greater than Moses when Moses fed people manna from heaven for 40 years? Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Beginning from this point throughout the rest of the chapter, it's all going to be about what Jesus says versus what people think. Watch how it manifests. Here's the first time it shows up. They said, well, Moses fed people for 40 years. Moses gave them bread in the wilderness. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you. Notice the two different phrases. Moses gave, my Father giveth. My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus is saying that the one that God sent was with him from the beginning. He started off in heaven. He didn't start off here on the earth. Moses started off here on the earth. Saying the one that the bread of heaven is the one that God sends is he. It's a person that God that was with God and came down from heaven from the beginning. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Sounds like the woman at the well of Samaria. Give me this water that I may not have to draw anymore. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Notice he talks about, he gives two words. He says, cometh and believeth. Here's how exact the Holy Ghost is. Are you familiar with Hebrews eleven six? 6? Hebrews eleven six 6 says, for without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Notice how the Holy Ghost uses the same language that Jesus used. He that cometh to me shall never thirst, and he that believeth on me, or cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. In other words, he's saying, it takes more than just seeing miracles and saying, yeah, I want to see some more. That's not what real believing is. The miracles are supposed to take you to a place of believing. It's supposed to take you to a change of heart or a change of attitude towards the things of God. And that's where you guys aren't at yet. That's what he's saying. Verse 37. All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven. Notice he's talking about where he came from. I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now, there's uh, there's three words that Jesus is going to start using. One is come or cometh. The other is talking about the Father giving him, those that the Father giveth him. And the third word that he's going to use is the Father drawing people. Now, a lot of times people will use these words to, to talk about predestination. They'll say, well, see, God gives the people that he wants to be saved. That's not what Jesus is going to describe. He talks about people coming and people being given Him by God and people being drawn by the Father according to their will, according to what they do based on the truth of the word that they hear. Let me prove it to you. Verse 39, And this is the Father's will which He has sent me, or which has sent me, that of all which He has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So what makes the difference? Seeing the Son, in other words, recognizing him for who he is, the one sent from God, the Messiah, the Christ, the divine Son of God sent down from heaven, and believing in him. It doesn't have anything to do with God picking and choosing. You pick and choose. And that's what he's saying. You've chosen wrongly. Now, why have they chosen wrongly? Because Jesus told them that he's the bread of life. And they say, yeah, but Moses gave people bread for 40 years. How do we know about you? It all comes down to the same thing. It comes down to the truth of the word versus the reasoning of the mind. You remember in uh, Mark chapter 4 when Jesus tells his parable of the so sow in the word? You remember what he starts off with? He said, a so sows the word and some fell by the wayside and the birds come immediately and, and, and eat it up. Well, what is that? What causes the word to be immediately taken away from somebody's heart? When they hear the truth of the word and they reason it away. That's the first way that the devil tries to steal the word from somebody's heart is that once we hear the truth, the objection is coming to our mind saying, yeah, but what about this? And people accept the, yeah, what about this? And they reject the truth of the word. They say, well, okay, the word can't be true because what about this? That's what Jesus is talking about. And that's exactly the situation that the Jews are going to be in in a few verses. It's exactly the situation that the multitude is going to be in. And it's exactly the situation that the disciples are faced with themselves at the end of the chapter. Everything comes down to what was the the, the key verse of the parable of the sower sowing the word. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 41. Now it's going to change places here. It said, Then the Jews murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now, verses 41 through 59 change locations. Jesus has been out in the open. Now he shifts over into the synagogue. He's going to move. Verse 59 talks about these things Jesus said in the synagogue in Capernaum. So now he's going to change locations. But And the reason we know that is because John never identifies the Jews as part of a multitude. He always talks about the Jews as a separate group. Now, the Gentiles can't get into the synagogue in in Capernaum. So what happens in the Capernaum synagogue has to be among the Jews. That's all that can be there. You can't be a Gentile and go in the synagogue. So it says, then the Jews began to murmur. What does that mean? That means in the time that it took for Jesus to be out by the seaside, where the people were talking to him, where he was explaining these things about being sent down from the Father, about being the bread sent from heaven, by the time he walks to the synagogue, the Jews have gotten their game plan together. They've started talking to, well, wait a minute. He said this. That can't be. How is it he calls himself the bread of heaven or the bread that came down from heaven? They've got their stories ready when he gets into the synagogue. So the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? Jesus said he came down from heaven. They're saying, well, wait a minute. We know his mother and father. How can he be from heaven when we know his mother and father? Did they really know his mother and father? They knew his caretakers here on the earth. Did they really know his mother and father? Of course not. Jesus said God was his father. And their thinking is that can't be true. It can't be true. What Jesus said is true can't be true because we know what family he came from. So what are they doing? They're rejecting the word because of what they think. They're rejecting the word because of their reasoning based on what they think they know. And as a result, they're not coming to him. They're not part of the group that the father gives them, gives him. And they're not being drawn of the Father. They're rejecting that pull of the Holy Ghost, that conviction of the Holy Ghost that tries to impress upon all of mankind that what the Bible says is true is true. Katie and I were on the way to church uh, Sunday morning and she punched in a radio radio program, you know, radio station, Christian radio station, and it was a song, I've heard it before, and, and it's a beautiful song, beautiful voice, I don't know who sings it, beautiful voice, but it's all this stuff about what if healing comes through misery and suffering and and, and all this stuff. I don't even, I don't know the name of the song, I don't want to know the name of the song, don't ever want to hear it again, but it's it's uh it, it just it, it, beautiful voice, I, I'm sure the little girl is sincere when she's singing it, sings it beautifully, and it's just so full of unbelief you can't believe it. That... I didn't mean to say it that way, but I guess that kind of fit, didn't it? It is so full of unbelief, it's almost unbelievable. And I thought to myself, why in the world doesn't somebody come up with, somebody that's able to write songs, why doesn't somebody come up with a song that says, what if the Bible is true? What if God is who he says he is? What if healing is available for all, and all we have to do is believe? Boy, that'd be a song, wouldn't it? Because you don't hear any of that kind of singing. Why? Because people think according to their experiences, and they say the word can't be true because of what we see and know. And they don't see or know anything according to the truth. And that's what the Jews are doing here. It's interesting that this word murmur is the same word that the Septuagint uses for the Israel murmuring in the wilderness. They're doing exactly the same thing their fathers did and missing out on what God sent them. Then Jesus therefore answered, verse 43, and said unto them, Murmur ye not among yourselves... No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him. Here's that word draw again. Cometh, giveth, and draw. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now notice verse 45. Verse 45 is a real key. He said, "I." it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore of that, that heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So what is he saying? He's saying the way to come from, come unto me. And remember, Jesus said, he that cometh to me, I will know I was cast out. He said, the thing that, that makes the difference in coming to me is if you're taught of the Lord. Now, this is Isaiah fifty-four thirteen, I think it is. And all their children shall be taught of the Lord. What does that mean? That means when you're faced with what the truth of the word is versus what you think you know, you accept the teaching of the word because it's God saying it. It means you reject your reasoning when it contradicts the truth of the word. And that means you're coming and believing and being drawn to God. And folks, that's the element of faith. That's all there is to faith. Because you're going to find that the word contradicts all kinds of circumstances in your life. Well, which one's true? They can't both be true. One's true and the other's a lie. Which one is it? Well, my circumstances are facts, Pastor Mike. That can't be a lie. There's a difference between truth and facts. It may be a fact that your body is attacked with sickness. It may be a fact that you don't have enough money to pay your bills. It may be a fact that you don't feel close to God. But it's truth that Jesus bore your infirmities and took your uh, bore your sicknesses and... You know what I'm trying to say. He took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses and with His stripes you're healed. It's truth that the chastisement of peace was... Your peace was upon Him and with His stripes you're healed. It's truth that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Even though that truth may contradict the factual circumstance in your life. So you got to pick one or the other. They can't both be right. And most Christians won't make the choice. They'll go down through life and say, well, this is true for me. The circumstances are what they are. I don't know about the word over there. I guess it just doesn't belong to everybody. And what are they doing? They're rejecting Jesus just like the unsaved reject him. Now, you can be saved and reject Jesus in other ways. You can accept Jesus and be drawn to him according to the truth of him dying on the cross for your sins and not get anything else of what he did. And it all comes down to the same thing. Is it the truth of the word or is it what I think? So Jesus says, It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. How do you know if somebody's taught of God? They accept the word instead of the circumstance of their life. That's what it means to be taught of God. We call it the renewing of the mind in the the New Testament. But that's what it means. It means to be taught of God. Then Jesus says something more. He says... um, Well, we'll finish verse 45 again. It says, every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father, in other words, accepted the truth of the Word, accepted the truth that has been given by God, He's the one that comes unto me. He's the one that I'll raise up on the last day. He's the one that I'll in no wise cast out. He's the one that God's giving to me. He's the one that's being drawn to the Father. You see how it fits? Verse 46, now Jesus says something else interesting. He says, not that any man has seen the Father, save or accept he which is of God, he has seen the Father. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, and you can only see and hear from God through me. I'm the only one that can see God. I'm the only one that can hear from God. Don't think that you can come up with your own ideas and say, well, this is what we know from the Old Testament. So this is what we know or have heard from God. Jesus said the only way to see from God is the one that was sent down from heaven, and that's me. There is no other way. So whatever you think you know about the law of Moses, forget it if it contradicts what I'm telling you. Whatever you think you know about your life experience, forget it if it contradicts the truth that I'm speaking. Now, folks, those are words to live by. Verse 47, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Now, what do we know that believing on him means? We know that believing on him means accepting what he says instead of what you might think. I am that bread of life. He's telling them the truth again. I am that bread of life. There, uh, John tells us in John chapter 8 about verse, I don't know, 50, 58, somewhere around there. He speaks to the Jews, he's speaking to the religious leaders, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus identifies himself as the one that spoke to Moses in the burning bush, saying, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses said, who will I tell him to send me? Tell him, I am that I am, hath sent me. Jesus identifies himself in chapter 8 as the great I am. I believe Jesus is saying it was me talking to Moses in the bush. Personally, that's what I believe. I believe it's Jesus saying it was me speaking to Moses out of the bush. Now, after he makes that declaration or since he makes that declaration, John's the only one that tells us that he said that to the Jews. Seven different times, Jesus identifies himself as the I am. Here he says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, he says, I am the door to heaven. Chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. Chapter 15, he says, I'm the true vine. Every time he's saying, I am. And it's the emphasis is on I am, and this is part of who the I am is. The way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection and the life. The true vine. The light of the world. Every time, I am. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And the Jews know exactly what he's saying. And every time he says it, they want to kill him. Verse 49. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. But this is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. So he's talking about two different deaths. The death in verse 49 is a natural death. The death he's talking about in verse 50 is a spiritual death. Now, that's not the first time Jesus does that. Jesus said in one place, he said, let the dead bury their dead. What does he mean? Let the spiritually dead bury those that have naturally died. So he's saying the manna of the wilderness, that didn't give anybody eternal life. That fed their bodies, but those people died. Manna didn't keep them alive. Didn't keep them from dying eventually. But he said, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. He's saying, it's me and only me that is the source of eternal life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Notice how many times he says that. He says, I was in heaven before with God and I came down from heaven. Now folks, he can't be mistaken about this. He's either telling the truth or he's lying. There's no middle ground here. And that's exactly the point that John's trying to make throughout the whole gospel. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread which I give will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again, they're faced with what Jesus says versus what they think. They know it's contrary to the law of Moses to eat any living human being. It's contrary to the law of Moses to drink any blood, much less human blood. And Jesus is going to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they're going to say, but the law of Moses says this. And Jesus says, but I'm speaking the word of God. You're going to have to make your choice between what you think and what's true. And only what I'm telling you is the truth because I came down from heaven. That's why he says it over and over again. I ought to know I was there. I'm the one that God sent down here, so what I'm saying has to be God's word. And he hammers it over and over and over again. So the Jews strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now compare this to verse 47. Verse 47, Jesus said, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. So what do we know believing in him means then? It means eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, is he talking literally? No. He's talking about partaking of that which is made as a sacrifice, his body and his blood for the sins of the world. He's saying, except you be a partaker. But see, they hear it. And and Jesus doesn't back up. Jesus doesn't say, look, let me explain it to you so you can get it. He doesn't turn around and say, look, I know this is hard for you guys to get, but let me explain. No, he hammers down again. He said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What's he doing? He's forcing them to make a choice. He's forcing them to make a choice between what they think about the law of Moses and the truth of what he's saying. And he leaves these guys with their heads spinning. Whoso eateth my flesh, verse 54. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about dependence on God. He's saying, just like I depend on God, you depend on me. And that's what I mean by eating my flesh. It's a communion. It's a dwelling together. It's an abiding place. Now, we look back at it, and we understand a little better. But they're faced with the same thing that you and I are faced with and that is to accept the truth of the word or do we accept the circumstances and the way we think and the way we feel about it? Now folks, remember the Bible says God tests nobody or tempts nobody with evil. It does not say God won't test you. In my opinion, every scripture is a test. It's a test as to whether or not you're going to accept what the Bible says, what God claims to be the truth, or you're going to accept what you think about it, how you feel about it, or what your circumstances say. Every scripture is a test. Wasn't tithing a test for you? Man, it sure was for me. 10%? Are you kidding? I mean, 10% of nothing is not much, but still, 10%? Seriously? That was a test for me. And the only thing that caused me to step over the line and accept it and, and do what the Bible says is I'd made the determination, wait a minute, this is what God said. He said he'd bless me. This has got to be true because it's God saying it. No matter how I feel, no matter what I think about it, no matter how it looks like I'm not going to have enough, I'm going to do it anyway. And it worked. That's the same test we're faced with every scripture. The Bible says you've been healed by the stripes of Jesus. Yeah, but my body hurts. So which one's true? You're going to have to cross the line and say, wait a minute, God said it, so it has to be true. No matter how I feel, no matter what the doctor says, no matter what, this has got to be true, so I accept that as truth. And it works. Life is one big test as far as the Word of God is concerned. So don't get the idea that God won't test you. He'll throw scriptures at you and say, what are you going to do now? He just doesn't test or tempt you with evil. But He will test you with His Word. As the living Father, verse 57 again, As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Two words used for eat. The first word for eat is uh, your fathers uh, did eat manna. That word means to consume. They consumed manna and are dead. But he that eateth, that means feedeth upon this bread, the bread of life, shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now it's going to shift to another location. Now he's leaving the synagogue and he's out in the, he's back out with the disciples again. He's back out with the group. The multitude's not there in the same number that it was. But notice in verse 60 it says, many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, he's got Jewish follow, I mean, he's got Gentile followers just as much as Jewish followers. When it says, when they heard this, if they're in the synagogue, there's no matter of when they heard this. The fact that it says when they heard this tells us that it's a change of location. It tells us it's a change of time. When it comes back, when he comes back outside and it starts being being noise abroad, the Jews that were able to go into the synagogue said, wow, you should have heard him when he said this. They said, he said what? He said he's the bread of life. He said he came down from heaven. He, he said that what? When they heard this, they said, eat his flesh and drink his blood. Really? They said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear this? Now, so far, they're OK. They're just saying, wow, Jesus, we're having a hard time with this. You ever told the Lord that? Lord, I'm having a hard time with this. That's okay. There's not a problem yet. That means they're on the fence. But they're still faced with the same decision that we all are. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? Are you offended by this? Why are they offended? They're offended because their thinking isn't in line with what he said. They're not offended by anything that, 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 from God's end. They're just offended because they don't like the way that he said what he said. Because it offends their sensibilities. So we ask him another question. He said, does this offend you? He said, what about, what and if you see the son of man ascend into where he was before? He said, you think you having a hard time with this? What are you going to think when you see me rise back up to heaven? What are you going to think then? In other words, he's saying, is your reasoning really worth giving up your place with me? What's your reasoning going to tell you when you see me ascend back up to heaven? Oh, wow. I guess we should have believed that eating his blood, eating his flesh and drinking his blood stuff. That's what he's saying. He's telling him more truth. He's saying, I'm going to be ascending back up to my father. What are you going to think about this then? It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. What is he saying? He's saying it all comes back to one thing. He said the reason my words are spirit and life is because that's how you're taught of God. And unless you accept the teaching of God, the word of God as truth, instead of what your thinking is or what your reasoning is, where he said the flesh profits nothing, specifically he's saying the natural mind will keep you out of the things of God. The natural mind will keep you from coming to Jesus. It will keep you from believing in Jesus and receiving the benefits that he won for us, earned for us, paid for in the cross. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit in their life, but there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. What does he mean come unto me? He's talking about the choice between the word of God and your thinking. He's got people in his own camp, including Judas, that are going to be in the middle of everything that he ever does and never accept him, never able to overcome his own thinking about who Jesus is or he is not. From that time, verse, 50, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Why? Because they refused to accept the truth because of what they thought instead. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Folks, you know, what, one of the most outstanding things about this story to me is Jesus didn't try to keep the ground. We preachers, we're all trying to get crowds. Jesus didn't try to keep his. He said, look, if you want to be here for the right reasons, that's great. But if you're here for the wrong reasons, if you're not going to accept what I say as truth, no matter what you think about it, but you're going to rely on your own thinking instead, leave early and avoid the rush. Now he gets down to his 12, and he says, are you going to go away too? Sounds like everybody else is gone. Sounds like there's nobody left but the twelve. Are you going to go away too? Then Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Now, I've got to tell you something real honestly here, folks. I've given Peter a hard time for this. Because on one hand, it sounds like Peter says, you know, well, where are we going to go? If we had somewhere else, well, I might go. I, you know, we've given up that fishing business. Where are we going to go? We're, we're kind of committed now. But what he says is not that at all. I make jokes about it, but it's not a joke. Because Peter identifies... The conclusion, where he's come to on the same issue that everybody else has faced. What Jesus says that he doesn't understand, that he can't really comprehend versus what he thinks. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. What you're saying is true, whether we can understand it or not. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ. In other words, he's saying, we're with you no matter what you say. we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered then, them, have not I chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil? Now why is Jesus talking about that? Why is he talking about Judas? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was him, uh, for he it was that should betray him being one of the twelve. Why does he say that? Because Peter is speaking for the twelve and not all twelve were on board. Peter said, we believe and are sure. Jesus said, not all of you. I'm glad that's true for you, Peter, and I'm glad that's true for the other ten of you. But that's not true for all of you. You think you're speaking for all of you, and you're not all on the same page. What does it come down to? It comes down to the one thing, and that is from the beginning, from the multiplying of the loaves and fishes, Jesus is trying to show them, I am the Son of God, and therefore anything is possible. Creative miracles is not some giant step for God. So when you're toiling in life, when you're in the middle of the sea, and it looks like Jesus is nowhere around, if you're serving him, if you're abiding in him, the same creative miracle is available to you as it was when Jesus was multiplying loaves and fishes. But it all comes down to one key point, and that is what the word says versus what we think. You get your thinking in line with the word and the things that you can't understand. And folks, there are a lot of things we'll get to heaven. There will be a lot of things that we won't understand while we're here. But no matter what you don't understand, you accept the word to be true and you'll be one of those people that have access to all the fullness of God. That's the significance of this story. And that's why John tells us that Jesus is the son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are the miracle worker. Thank you for creative miracles available to us. Lord, we do believe in you and we're sure that you're the son of God. We're sure that you're the christ we're sure that you're raised from the dead we're sure that all power in heaven and earth is given unto you father we thank you for the things that are at work in our lives in our bodies in our families that look impossible to us but because we accept the truth of your word instead of what we think instead of how we feel instead of what things appear to be we thank you for the miraculous in jesus precious name Lord, we ask you to open our eyes to see that nothing is impossible with you. Therefore, nothing is impossible to us as believers. Even as you said to Abraham in the Old Testament, is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, Father, let us be a people that live by that. Nothing is too hard for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.